Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Or maybe you just lost it. Well, Stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this, tickets that not only look but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift, or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. families definitely be one of the biggest triggers of your life when it comes to stress you want to see how evolved you are go hang out with them for a week but in reality they can be the things that help us grow so today we're going to dive into looking at family relationships with our resident psychologist dr victoria thompson and unpack how do we help to build and grow from that family experience we've had and come out the other side stronger and wiser and braver from that experience Welcome, Dr. Vic, for another episode of Dear Stress. And today we're going to be talking about family stress. Before we dive into that, how are you today? Pretty good. It's a short week for me. I'm going on holiday, so I am, I'm feeling pretty motivated to get some stuff done before I head away. And also pretty excited for this topic. I think mm. it's such a massive one for people. Family stress can show up in so many different ways. It can show up in our, our present circumstances, but also, you know, past family stress and how that can impact us as we go about our daily lives as we are now. This is one of my favorite areas and something that I feel like the more that we take time to understand where we've come from, it can help shape and navigate the future as well. So it's going to mm-hmm. be a good episode to understand who we are and why we are the way we are. And what can we do to keep coming back to supporting our own needs? So tell me about your work as a psychologist. When did you start learning about the aspect of family stress and the way that it would impact people in their life? I think the first time I remember like specifically talking about family stress was I, I did a family therapy course or module and that was about sort of family systems work. So working, um, in a therapeutic space with the whole family and how you navigate that which is incredibly complex so that's kind of the first time that I remember doing some direct you know the whole family in the room kind of work unfortunately I, I do feel that psychology sometimes can be a little skewed towards the individual mm. and I think we, we sometimes fail to take into account the whole picture I think potentially New Zealand's a little bit better about that because we do have a little more of a, of a holistic 
framework here, but I think it's definitely something you have to be conscious of is, is taking into account not just the individual, but the whole environment in which they exist. And that can be past. It doesn't mean that you have to be living in your family situation right now, right? Mm-hmm. Can we talk about that? So there's obviously different st- types of families. That's something that may trigger your stress response in the future. So how do people understand if the stress in their family has impacted the way that they're going to deal with stress in the future? Well, I mean, it has. <laughs> Simple <Whether> answer. You, <laughs> whether you've had a really, you know, a relatively stable upbringing. I, I mean, no, no upbringing is perfect ever and no parenting is perfect and we're not perfect people. So there's always going to be things that impact the way that we navigate stress because ultimately we learn so much in those early years from our parents that we have no other concept of how to do life as it were, without observing our caregivers. We tend to to go through our younger years responding to stress in similar ways to our parents. And there's some really interesting research around understanding something called mirror neurons in parenting. So mirror neurons being the idea that we have neurons that fire when we observe someone do an action. You're watching a movie and the person is really sad in it or something really emotive happens and then you become teary or upset. It's not actually happening to you, but it's your mirror neuron firing as if it were. And that's sort of our empathy system as well, a little bit in there. So the the idea is that when parents have an emotional response to something or they become stressed, how they respond to that your, your child is really learning from that because their mirror neurons will be firing. It'll be really interesting to see this new generation, you know, that we're so much more emotionally, emotionally literate. I'm looking forward to seeing in my practice this new generation coming through and their own understanding and expression of emotions and how that might be different to sort of people, I don't know, I'm in my 30s, so my age to see how what we were taught about emotions versus, you know, the little kids coming through now. I can see so much stuff like on social media about, you know, primary school teachers showing kids how to express emotions and a lot more conversation around emotions. I have no recollection of that being None. <laughs> None. No, I do not remember it coming up at all. I remember like, you know, eat some veggies and fruit, do some exercise. <laughs> I mean, we have a lot of needs as children and sometimes some of those go unmet. So perhaps you grew up in an environment where your emotions were suppressed, you know, that they were perceived as problematic or troublesome or you were perceived as dramatic. And and perhaps you developed, you know, these deep-rooted beliefs about not being likable or worthlessness that's really common, you know, that not important. And so acceptance that that is the reality of what happened for you during childhood, whether your your parents had the best intentions or not, that may have been one of the, the repercussions or a deep rooted beliefs that you learned about yourself or you learned to believe about yourself rather. So I think that, that the idea is how can we in adulthood then go and work on meeting our own unmet needs? So what was it that I was missing in childhood, perhaps some validation of my emotions and how can I now as an adult who's more self-aware and has done pieces of self-reflection on this, validate my own emotions and how can I, you know, implement skills to be able to do that? And so I, I guess that, that there's a bit of a journey there around trying to fulfill our own unmet needs in adulthood. You know, our partner can't possibly fulfill all of the needs that we have. So we do have some responsibility to try and soothe those needs ourselves. 
It's the idea of being self-aware, right? So what are the patterns that we notice in ourselves? So you talked a little bit about parenting and how we can then reflect on, okay, well, when mom used to get upset or angry, she used to withdraw. Gosh, I noticed that in when I get angry, I start to withdraw. So how can I be aware of that? And, and how do I actually want to engage with frustration? Because withdrawal isn't working for me. So instead, I want to work on trying to remain present, even though I have this really big urge to run from the situation. So awareness, like we said, is the biggest part. And start with yourself before you can look at the bigger picture of anything else. How do you shift that? Well, it's a big question. (laughs) It is. Yeah, so I guess uh, we're talking about core beliefs. We all have them, right? We all have deep-rooted beliefs about ourselves and who we are as people. And they've been around for a long, long time for us, if we're adults listening to this, and and developed when we were younger. Perhaps an example could be that one of your parents leaves and you don't have any contact with them anymore. And as a child, we believe that things happen because of us because we don't really understand that the mum and dad exists outside of us and all of that. We believe that the world kind of operates around us. And so what happens is that that young child then internalizes that as being their own fault. You know, dad left, for example, because I'm annoying or I'm not very likable or I'm not good enough. And so it sometimes the child can then develop that deep-rooted belief around being worthless or unlovable. You know, those are really common ones. And then that will of course, be present for them as they navigate through life. So then when things happen to them, like they get rejected by someone they're dating or they don't get the job, they believe that it's because of their internal failings, you know, that they are actually just really unlikable or unlovable. And of course, that can impact how we go through life, right? If we believe that about ourselves, we're less likely to kind of put ourselves out there. And we're always going to be really self-deprecating. These exist for all of us, these belief systems. And and sometimes it's helpful, actually. There is a, a method in acceptance and commitment therapy where you give that belief a name or you call it like a story. Mm-hmm. So, for example, you can say, oh, that's my I'm not good enough story playing out here when you notice it showing up, right? So say that you've gone a few dates with someone, it's going really well, and then they're like, oh, actually, I'm not interested. It's likely that's going to activate that core belief like, oh, yeah, but it's because I'm not attractive enough, I'm not good enough, they could do better than me. And then so what you can do is, is start to notice that pattern of thought showing up and go, ah, there it is, that's my... I'm unlovable story playing out. And in that sense, it doesn't mean that you don't still believe it, but it starts to separate the thought a little bit from your own mind because our thoughts aren't reality most of the time. We have so many a day. And so it's helpful sometimes to try and tease apart the thought process from our reality. So you're creating space between the way that the mind is reacting to see see for you to observe and go, is that really the truth or is there something else behind it that's making my body not feel good about the situation? Yeah. I mean, there's so many therapeutic approaches to working on that core belief stuff. And sometimes that means for people trying out a few different therapy modalities or a few different therapists. And, and, And that's really normal as well that you might not just stick at the first person you find or the first modality that you find and remembering that it's really helpful to reflect to your therapist if you feel like 
that that mode of exploring it is just not quite gelling for you. Mm. Sound advice that it doesn't have to be the first person off the rank that is going to be the right fit for me in my mind. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. Our lives were never the same after we learned our 21-year-old daughter, Kristen, was murdered by her ex-boyfriend. It's a parent's worst nightmare. How much did we really know about domestic violence back then? Clearly not enough. Now we know plenty. We know domestic violence, or DV, can happen to anyone. One in three women suffer physical violence at the hands of intimate partners during their lifetimes. One in three. I'm Bill Mitchell, host of the When Dating Hurts podcast. And my interviews with DV counselors, law enforcement, and especially actual DV survivors give the pandemic of domestic violence the attention it deserves. The When Dating Hurts podcast. It's a series of lives being saved. What you were saying before I thought was really good around that kind of internal wiring and that belief system and and how that then can lead on to that nervous system and stress response being so strong. If you get stuck in that sort of mode with anxiety and depression, then how that can lead on to sort of more chronic um, mental illness. Is there a link between that? Absolutely. You know, most of us do have those stories. And I suppose that it's always about how much they impact your ability to function in the world that's kind of a determinant for how much they're going to potentially could lead to you to experience some mental distress. Mm-hmm. Of course, there are some really well-documented links between childhood trauma and mental distress in our adult years. So yeah, if you have trauma in your childhood, you are much more likely to experience anxiety and depression as a an adult or even as a child. Also things like post-traumatic stress disorder, which can be experienced by both children and adults. I feel like we're now talking about childhood trauma and actually it's such a high rate. I don't know the stats in the moment. I've just looked at it a few months ago for America and it's astounding the millions of children that have been experiencing that in the last year. And that's at that top end of physical and emotional and mental abuse. And the impact that has on their their ability to function in the adulthood. Um, I know they do a lot more research and studies with the ACE schools. Maybe you can talk yeah. about that. And that's been a really powerful way of people going, oh, okay, here's all the things that can impact the way that I'm going to deal with stress, including things like divorce, right? Yeah. So the ACE is the Adverse Childhood Experiences Scale. It's a psychometric that you can use to 
get a sense of the level of trauma that one has been through. And there's research that suggests that the trauma is on that scale. For example, things like uh, divorced parents or sexual, physical abuse, neglect, that sort of thing, that they can then make it more likely that we experience mental distress in adulthood. I think it's also important sometimes, though, to recognize that it doesn't always have to be that top-end trauma. Of course, that makes it more likely for us. But of course, trauma is a spectrum, and our own context is really important that something that's traumatic for someone else might not be uh, traumatic for us and vice versa. But what the research is showing is that some level of trauma in our childhood, whatever that looks like for us, makes our neurobiology more susceptible to the impacts of stress. So, I mean, Emma, this will be your area of expertise, but that idea of elevated cortisol and the idea that when the trauma is happening, of course, we experience heightened stress response, you know, our survival mechanism kicks in, of course, but long after the trauma has happened, we can experience that elevated stress response that is ongoing. Um, And of course, that can impact our neurobiology. Mm, Absolutely. It shows up in so many ways in our body as we get older. So whether it's inflammatory, there's a lot more research now, particularly Dr. Gabor Mate is really shining a light on the impact of childhood trauma as well with illness and disease. And then the way that we deal with conflict and, and express ourselves, there's much more information now about how that hijacks the neurophysiology of that nervous system and keeps us stuck in that survival state. And so when you see that, then you can also go, okay, so that's been the experience my body's had to do to cope and get through. And that survival mechanism is an asset, but it can mean that you have got a shortened bandwidth as you then move in through life. Knowing that you can actually expand it is also really powerful. That doesn't have to be kind of reduced, but because of that, you will have physical changes that may occur. There's been some research done in the Dunedin study, and they found that children that had experienced trauma were more likely to have a breathing dysfunction and asthma in early adulthood and going through the rest of their life. So we saw the consequences of them body being stuck in that freeze and flight or fight response, then being in that survival pattern for, for long periods. So we look at pe- people holistically when they have a breathing disorder going through and go, well, what was your story? What was your experience growing up? Did you feel safe? What was the body's support systems and mental support systems around that you had? Because those will all be part of the reason why the body gets hijacked all three of those core pillars to wellness and dealing with stress can be adapted and changed in later life, right? So when we look at family stress, the consequence of it can be unwound, but we have to do the work. And the work can feel a lot when you go, but I just don't even know where to start, especially when you're at that top end of the stress spectrum and feeling some of that mental distress like we talked about. Mm. And I think, you know, there's something quite interesting that I've observed in my own practice is people experience quite a lot of guilt. Yes about their family relationships in therapy because you know most of the time people's upbringings are okay in general most people have had a fairly okay upbringing and so they can feel sometimes really uncomfortable exploring some of the not so good sides of their upbringing i guess it's i mean it's a beautiful in one way the sense of kind of loyalty yeah. um but yeah feeling perhaps like you were uh, speaking badly of your parents and find that a really interesting dynamic because yeah, it means that sometimes people don't want to bring stuff up in therapy, even though it may be really useful to them. So it takes quite a lot sometimes to try and encourage 
people to explore it, not from a place of um, judgment or criticism necessarily, but just to be like, yeah, well, you know, my parents tried their best, but despite that, X, Y, Z happens because I think that no matter how hard you try, you, there's always going to be some impacts of you as a human on another human. And sometimes that's not the best thing for the other person, despite you trying your best. Yeah. I think that's been a big part of the people that I work with as well, is that it's like the betrayal almost yeah. of their family and you don't want to let them down. And so that can also be part of if you had to parent your parent mm -hmm. as you were growing up, or what was the, that dynamic in the relationship? Also with numbers of siblings. I'm one of six. There's lots of dynamics in my yeah. family upbringing. And, and like we said, we can have our um, roof over our heads, we can have food on the table, and there can be still this aspect of what it is to be supported and nurtured and connected that can be missing and that can feel really hard. There's lots of things that will flow through which haven't necessarily come from, like you said, trauma or abuse. And I, I suppose the other impact of family stress is that we may still be having family stress with our family and our adults. You know, so I see that a lot in practice, of course, because we're still connected most of the time to our family units. And that can be, you know, with our parents or our siblings or our family that we've created, our partners or kids or whatever. It's one of the huge things that we see in, in therapy is how do I navigate these interpersonal relationships? I guess one of the, the most common ones that I see is mother-daughter dynamics. Tell me about that. Especially having a, a, like a nine-year-old girl. Like I look at it from yeah. that end as well as being a daughter. It's sometimes very hard for daughters to set boundaries with mothers because oftentimes mothers and daughters are more enmeshed mm -hmm. than daughters and their fathers. And generally speaking here, so there is like this very intense relationship between mother and daughter that sometimes as the daughter starts to become more independent as a teenager, as we do, you know, uh, our needs start to change and we start to rely more on our friends developmentally for our self-esteem and our joy and all of those things, that the mum can start to feel a little less behind. And it tends to be in those kind of teenage years of course, then you just have the, you know, the teenage hormones and all of those things in addition. <laughs> but that's when the relationship can start to fracture for people. Yeah. As the mother almost grieves the shift in the parenting. Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah sometimes. I think what's really important is to reflect on those stages of the family, the evolution of it. One of the big lessons for me in the last probably three or four years particularly since I went through the con man experience, the story of that was noticing how family support during times of stress. It's been really fascinating looking at that. And one process that really came clear was it's the effort that I put in in these relationships that will at that time was going to make or, or break, you know, if people want to feel connected or safe. And I've had the real pleasure in the last two years having really solid time with my parents being in the same city and into the same house while I've been building them helping nurture and support my children. That is not normal. You know, people look at me and go, how did you even do that with your family? I'm not going to pretend it was easy, you know, in regards to the family relationships. It was like, oh, stuff's going to come up at any age, in any stage, but it's about learning how you communicate around it and what you can let go of in relationships and what 
boundaries you need to put in there as well. And I think boundaries is a really important part to look at at any age and stage. Very hard when you're a child, right? And you feel stressed and you feel overwhelmed, you feel unsupported to put that boundary in. But how do you do that going forward in your life in the future? Yeah, it's a it's a great point. So, I mean, I think a huge amount of the work that I do in private practice is helping people to build boundaries or navigate boundaries. And oftentimes that's boundaries with family. Um, it's such an important piece of work, but it's a really, really challenging piece of work for people. And I think what you said is really important is that our relationships change over time. You know, you, for example, you, your relationship now when you have children with your parents is different to when Very you different. had them before. So then it's whole new boundaries that come in around, you know, access to the kids and how you want to parent versus how they think you should parent and all of those complexities. So the question is, how do I start to develop boundaries? And I think that the, the most important thing to start off thinking about is what is important to you? Because sometimes, well, a lot of the time we go through life, like we talked about before, we learn so much from our parents and we start to operate in the world in a similar way to our parents. And then as we kind of get older and we develop a bit more independence, we go, oh, shoot, I just really don't like the way you respond to conflict or I really, gosh, I really don't want to have uh, a relationship with my partner like mom and dad, for example. So we start to differentiate in that way. And so we start to shape our own value system. We start to realize, hey, what's actually important to me? What do I want my life to look like? And of course, it can cause rifts in interaction. Absolutely. Yeah. When you Big become, time. get awareness around, that's actually not what I want. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And sometimes that can also mean that you have to shine a light on behavior from perhaps your parent or sibling that you, is actually not in line with your value system. And gosh, yep. It's so uncomfortable. So conflicted yeah. and uncomfortable. And that's that's the emotional and psychological pain, right? And that can be as intense as physical pain. Mm, exactly. And, it, you know, it, setting boundaries is hard for most people, but it's even harder if you grew up in a house where perhaps there was a really high level of enmeshment or, you know, sort of loose boundaries or your boundaries weren't respected or you felt in general that your needs weren't respected. Mm. And so we can kind of develop these adaptive mechanisms as children, things like not expressing needs, continuing to be a mesh with our parents and telling them more things than we feel comfortable with, for example, or one of the really common ones that I'm sure resonates with a lot of people listening is people-pleasing. You know, people-pleasing one usually gets developed quite early on because like I said before, you know, we think that the world rolls around us as children in a nice way. Mm. And so when we help out, we get rewarded and so we go oh okay people like me more when I help them out so we kind of develop this people pleasing mentality and also tend to you know in a lot of cases develop sort of conflict avoidance we're really really fearful of any conflict and that of course can make us more inclined to meet other people's needs before our own or people pleasing so I think that if you have that kind of mechanism in yourself of people pleasing in order to avoid uncomfortable emotions because that's what it is right gosh it makes me so uncomfortable to assert my need it makes me so uncomfortable to disappoint or upset others that i would rather cross my own boundaries so i avoid sitting with how uncomfortable it makes me feel i mean that's what it is so that kind of emotional avoidance through the protective mechanism of people pleasing makes setting boundaries really hard Mm. there's a big thing to say no 
Yeah. And it's like evolutionary, isn't it? We're pack animals. So it's our nature to want to be accepted by the group. But over time, you experience more and more people crossing your boundaries um, and you build resentment, you burn out. You know, if you think about the workplace or you end up just totally withdrawing from people because it becomes too overwhelming um, and constantly feel taken advantage of. So thinking about how we can approach boundaries, the first part of that being about thinking about your own value system. Sometimes it's helpful to do a really contrived exercise around like looking at lists of values online. Oh, oh I and, love and that. Do, no, I do that all the time. But all, yeah, I don't think it's contrived at all. Like we do it with my <laughs> business workshops. I do it with my personal things because it's your compass. And actually, yeah. so no, 100% I'm on there with that one. And okay. I think if people haven't done it before, then it can be mind-blowing when they realize this is what's important to me. When they're not sticking to their values list, that is when it can feel uncomfortable and they're mm. like, I don't know what's going on here. Why does this not feel good? A really easy one to do is if you Google Brene Brown values list, she's got a fabulous one there to kind of like scan through and I'll put the link in the show notes. And just even looking at three to five, right? And having a conversation around that with your partner as well is really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, that's always a good thing to do, isn't it? Also a good one, you know, for doing when you're dating. Yeah. Is to try and think about your value system and perhaps you could, you know, focus in on your relationship values. And that's really helpful, I think, as an anchor to date with as well. It's like, oh, what's really important to me is family or are they equally ambitious? Do we have the same value system in that? So I think, it, like you said, it's a compass. And so when we're negotiating boundaries, it can be really helpful to orient yourself back to, okay, what is actually important to me or what's going to suit my needs best? Because sometimes we really do need to put ourselves first, even at the expense yeah. of disappointing someone else. Um, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. And there's also nothing wrong with saying no, but it, gosh, does it make us uncomfortable because we inherently do want to please people, but. Ultimately, we do need to be able to say no to things that overstretch us or push our boundaries, even if that means sitting with the uncomfortableness of disappointing someone else. You know, navigating conflict in the family unit can be very challenging, right? How do we do that in the best way possible, especially when people that just, you know, don't hear it, push their boundaries, aren't listening? And, you know, as the boundary that you go, I don't actually want to communicate with you. Like, that's a pretty big boundary that I know people have had to put in place with their family. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there are people in most of our lives where we feel like they just can't observe boundaries. You know, we often know that our boundaries have been overstepped. You get that kind of almost visceral Ooh. feeling of like, oh, I really don't like this. And so that's a really good piece of information, you know, from your own body is that kind of like a reaction of yeah. like, resentment or feeling really uncomfortable you know it may be even that you go to a party and you you talk to someone new and you kind of overshare and then you get that kind of feeling like oh god I really I like overset my own boundary there you know I really wanted to make them feel comfortable and please them but at the same time I overset my own boundary so that's a sometimes a good way of gauging where your boundaries lie one of the things that I have found really helpful in my own journey with boundaries and sharing with my clients is the idea that my emotions are my responsibility and your emotions are your responsibility and trying not to 
get those two things confused. So needing to take the frustration or the pain or the disappointment away from someone else is not my responsibility. I actually can't control that. So understanding you're allowed to respond in the way that you want to respond and I'm allowed to respond in the way that I want to respond. You've got your stuff and I've got mine. And I take responsibility for my emotional responses like you must take responsibility for yours. And I think that that's a really nice thing to reflect on and that I don't have to soothe everyone's emotional state. All I have to do is soothe my own. Mm. And how do they do that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) I think it's just helpful to be aware of it, right? Like. Okay. And sometimes it's, you, you just need to say it kind of out loud to yourself. Sometimes I say to people like, well, that's kind of their shit. Yeah. You know, like, it's your shit. That's not my shit. And I don't need to take that on. And so it's about holding and regulating your own and, and learning this emotional regulation, self-soothing. Gosh, this is really uncomfortable for me. I know that it's really hard because I know I've upset my mum. But at the same time, I can't move my boundary to make her feel better because then I'm not being kind and honest and meeting my needs or my children's needs or whatever it is. And so I have to sit here now and tolerate the fact that she's pissed off or she's uncomfortable, she's upset and know that that's okay because it's not my responsibility because I don't go out of my way to be spiteful, hurtful. That's not my intention. But if she is upset of an impact of my actions but I was doing them to meet my needs without the intention of hurting her, then I have to be okay with that because I can't control her emotional responses. And that is the crux of why it gets feels so tough. But it yeah. is the, like, if that is the takeaway from today, this is my shit, that is your shit, deal with it. I think that is gold. And, and I think it's like that circle of control stuff, right? So we have a circle in which we can control. It's, you know, what we say our behavior outside of that is how other people feel, what other people say, whatever. There's all these things we can't control. And so we cause ourselves a lot of stress by trying to operate outside of our own circle of control. Sometimes it does cause hurt. We may know that going into it, but it's not our intention to be harmful to others, but that maybe that people are upset by our choice. You know, like it's not my intention to hurt you guys. But it may be a consequence. You may experience sadness or hurt from it. But I have to go through with it knowing that that may be a response or a reaction of you. And I know that that isn't my responsibility to try and fix. It's really uncomfortable dynamic. It is. It is. And I think then when you're dealing with this conflict, you can still do the work that we talked about in the past, which is make sure we're listening and being present to people but we're not having to fix it or take away people's pain, right? That's a big part of the emotional regulation and literacy. Oh, it, and it's such an urge, isn't it? I notice, yeah, sometimes in therapy when I, people are talking to me, I notice sometimes I can slip into this problem-solving. I'm sure it's familiar to all of us. It's not yeah. problem-solving, and I'm like, gosh, like, what am I trying to do? Like, what? I just need to sit in this with them. Like, I don't need to fix this for them because I can't. I cannot take that away from them. And so it's just sometimes helpful to take a step back. Of course, you know, we talked a little bit in past episodes about uh, navigating conflict and things like that. It's those really crucial skills around 
trying to uh, do it when you're not emotionally escalated, trying to validate and listen. Look, I know that this is going to be really hard for you. And I understand that this is probably upsetting for you. Nonetheless, this is, you know, what I need to do. And so being able to validate and hear what the other person is saying, but at the same time, having that kind of anchoring in yourself to just sit with your own decision-making and noticing the urge to try and move your boundary to soothe their emotional state and just reminding yourself that actually your only responsibility is to soothe your own emotional state and they're going to respond to how they respond and that's their shit. Conflict can happen in the little moment, right, when somebody reacts and then the stress volume goes up and everybody's on alert mode. And so sometimes you've got to go, how do I repair afterwards? How do I express myself afterwards and find it in a way where we, we can all learn and we can all grow from it? Mm-hmm. And again, that can be really challenging depending on the upbringing that you've had. And so that may not be that you can do that in your family unit, actually. Mm-hmm. It might be that you have to practice these things with your therapist or some friends to share those you know, reactions of what I wish I could have said or what I could have done to protect myself because you haven't been able to navigate that conflict in a way that you would have maybe hoped or liked with the family. Yeah, I I think that's a great piece of advice. You know, that idea sometimes we do have to practice these conversations ahead of time. And sometimes that can give us a really nice map Mm -hmm. and that can help us to make sure that we're not pulled outside of our own boundaries. You know, remembering, no, 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 you're saying this and this is how you're going to try and end the conversation and not getting sucked into uh, the other person trying to change your mind. Mm-hmm. So we call that kind of a cope ahead. So planning in advance what you're going to do. And you can pair that sometimes with relaxation exercises as well. So kind of playing it out in your mind whilst doing sort of slow breathing or progressive muscle relaxation or whatever it is. And so that when those things happen, you know, those situations that might be familiar in which you feel like your boundaries has been overstepped, or that you want to have a conversation about boundaries, you've kind of already done your prep work in advance. And that can mean, of course, that you come across a little more practice, but I think that's okay in those really difficult conversations. It shows that you have taken time out to really think about what you want to say, and and it might help you to articulate yourself and your needs a little bit better. There's a good place probably to finish this episode, just thinking about what can you do today to help put your extra mask on to make yourself feel a bit more safe, recharged, feel refreshed, to widen your stress window and finding ways to self-soothe, whether it's your breathing, whether it's just slowing down and drink a cup of tea. There are so many things that will shift your body's response. Again, Vic, I am so grateful for you coming and sharing your wisdom, how people think about this in a different way and integrating it with the mind and the body. Oh, thanks for having me. Until next time. Yes. <laughs>